Hello and welcome my fellow humans once again to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. Today's episode is number six and we'll be talking about the boy in the box. No, not the man in the box as popularized by the band Alice in Chains. No, we're talking about America's unknown child. That's not very specific, is it? There are many cases that fit that description, including Little Lord Fauntleroy that we talked about on this very show. But as is usual in these cases, this boy is special. We call him America's unknown child. Maybe that's what struck a chord with me about this case. Like a lot of the cases I look into, I rarely know more than the perfunctory bit of article here or informative YouTube channel there. With names like America's Unknown Child, you might think that we as a nation saw him as one of us. So let's take it on back to the late 1950s. Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. Coca-Cola was still mainly sold by the bottle and it would be another six years before we as Americans would face the tragic loss of President John F. Kennedy. Early 1957, in other words. So walk with me a while, listener, while we investigate the case of the boy in the box. Content warning. This episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions about the death of a child, descriptions of a crime scene, the state of a dead body, and mentions of malnourishment, physical, and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Winter was starting to leave the place for spring when this boy's body was found on February 25th, 1957. He was discovered by a man that had illegal animal traps and who cared more about not having those taken away than by having found a dead body. Thankfully, another person, Frank Guthrum, a college student, found the boy some days later claiming that he had followed a rabbit to check if it was all right as he knew there were animal traps around. But the truth is that his original plan was to spy on the girls from a school near the place and he didn't report the body out of embarrassment because of that. Another reason that Guthrum hadn't reported the body is that he thought that the boy was a realistic doll. Seeing news about a missing child, he realized that the boy from the woods was not a toy and finally told the authorities about him. The missing kid was a girl called Mary Jane Barker, so of course the dead body wasn't her. Guthrum ended up being a suspect due to him taking an entire day to report the body, but he was cleared of guilt afterwards. The boy's exact birth date is not clear. All we know for sure is that he was born around 1949 to 1954 and that he could have been three to seven years old. He was malnourished. That's also part of the reason why his age was a bit unclear. He might have looked younger because of that. Even when his fingerprints have been found and analyzed, this kid's identity is still unknown over 65 years later. Nobody claimed his body, and if his death was a murder or not is another mystery. His case is still open, and there's no actual suspects to this day. Hence why he's known as America's Unknown Child. I'm sure the title gave it away. 
Nothing certain about him or his identity has been found, and he has no known relatives even after multiple DNA tests through the years, even after the advances forensic science has made in the last decades. Now, let's talk about the state his body was found in. The boy was naked and partially wrapped on a cheap flannel blanket. Of course, that, with how inexpensive it was, police couldn't find who had bought that specific blanket. There were thousands of identical bedclothes around the country. All that the authorities could figure out was that it had been made either in Swanoa, North Carolina, or Granby, Quebec. Where the body was found is also important, near Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. Another crucial fact is that his body was found inside a cardboard box that used to contain a J.C. Penney bassinet. Keep in mind that only 12 were made of that specific model. 11 out of them were found, but as the store kept no record of individual sales, the last one wasn't found. Not at first, at least. As I've mentioned before, the boy in the box was malnourished, being so thin that his ribs showed through his skin. Not only that, but he had also suffered physical abuse before dying. His skin was filled with multiple bruises and scars, some being surgical and others not so much. The most notable scars he had were an L-shaped one under his chin, a scar on his chest, one near his groin, a round scar on his left elbow, and another one on his ankle. It is believed that this last scar was made to insert a needle for a surgical procedure of sorts that he had probably been hospitalized for sometime shortly before his death. He had no vaccination marks, which basically means the boy was not enrolled in any school, and his feet and palms had a considerable amount of wrinkles. It was a sign that he had been submerged in water recently. Medical examiners found out that he was being treated for an eye disease that could have been chronic, yet this clue still led nowhere. Despite his emaciated appearance, his nails had been trimmed, and he had recently gotten a hastily made haircut. His last meal included baked beans, as there were leftovers of them in his stomach. The child's lips were dry and bloody. He might have gotten too much sun or wind, and as it was winter, it was strange that he didn't show signs of having had a cold or other wintertime sickness like that. This case was opened a day after his body was discovered on February 26th, which was when the police got the report. Even after taking the child's fingerprints, his identity was still unknown. There was nothing certain about this mysterious boy. That's why it attracted so much media attention from Philadelphia and Delaware Valley. Over 400,000 flyers were distributed through Philadelphia. Envelopes of utility bills had the boy's face printed out on the front, while post offices and police stations bore the details of his discovery. The crime scene was combed multiple times by 270 police academy recruits. They found a white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner, a flannel shirt, a tan scarf, and a man's blue corduroy cap close to the place where the body was found. There also were black shoes nearby, but they didn't fit the boy. These clues proved to be less than useful. Police said his cause of death had been an accident, and that whoever had cut his hair had applied too much pressure to his head without realizing. The child had signs of cerebral hemorrhage and multiple blows to the head, whose origin was unknown. Later on, a barber came forward and said that he was the one who had cut the boy's hair, that the child had come up to his shop with his brother, and that he lived in an area called Strawberry Mansion. But that information led nowhere once again. Like how it happens with all cases, this one has a couple of theories, and I'll talk about a couple of them. 
There have been a lot of hypotheses over the years, but the ones I'll explain are the most relevant. First, we'll talk about Remington Bristow's theory about the boy being from a foster home. This man was an employee of Philadelphia's medical examiner's office. Some years after the body's discovery, he talked with a psychic who said the boy had died in an old mansion that had been turned into a foster home. There was one place that filled this description, and the family who owned it had already been interviewed. After 1961, they moved away, and the medical examiner assisted the estate sale of the property, which was located a mile away from Fox Chase. There was a J.C. Penny bassinet right there. It could have been a simple coincidence. The chances of these things being connected became more and more plausible because Bristow even saw blankets similar to the ones wrapped around the child's body. That small detail was what finally made him think that the foster home and the unknown boy were connected. He theorized that the child lived there and was the son of an unwed woman whose stepfather owned the mansion. The medical examiner believed that when the boy died, Bristow was unsure at this point if it was an accident or not, the owners of the mansion decided to dump his body, not willing to have people know about their illegitimate grandson and not wanting to be murder suspects. The case was reopened in 1998 and a detective interviewed the woman that Bristow suspected was the boy's mother. She had a son that died in 1957, which was slowly leading the case to an end, but more records have proved that it couldn't have been the boy in the box, so it was being back with basically no information. Bristow also had another theory. He believed that he drowned in a lake. Again, not sure if it was intentional or not, because the kid's skin was wrinkled as if it had been submerged for a long time. Although the police found that he had indeed been underwater, his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, not drowning. This theory was discarded quickly, and then radio silence regarding the case. There's been more recent theories, and the first one dates back to February 2002. Someone finally came forward to say that she knew who the boy was. It was a young woman named Martha. She claimed that her mother had bought the boy in 1954 and forced him to sleep in the basement, just like she had to do in the past. Martha said that he was called Jonathan and that she told the police that the child had been sexually and physically abused during the time he spent with the family. Eventually, he was hit on the head at dinner during one of Mother's many rage-fueled outbursts. Jonathan had vomited the food that was baked beans, and the older woman had slammed his head into a door until he fell unconscious. She then gave him a bath in which he died. To hide his identity, Martha's mother cut the boy's hair and forced her daughter to help hide the body near Fox Chase. When they were placing him in the car, a man stopped by and asked if they needed help, and Martha's mother said they were fine, and she stood in front of the license plate. The man drove off, and a male witness in 1957 allegedly verified Martha's story. She mentioned details that weren't told of the general public which made the police think that she might be telling the truth. After so many years, the identity of the boy was finally found. Or so everyone thought. But as authorities tried to verify the woman's story, the neighbors said that they had never seen a boy in their house. They also mentioned that Martha had a history of mental illness, which was verified by medical reports, although that didn't really explain how she knew the information that wasn't accessible to everyone. Even when that question went unanswered, police didn't investigate the family anymore after that. 
it would take six more years for another possible hypothesis to appear. The latest theory appeared in 2008 thanks to Frank Bender, a world-renowned forensic artist whose work helped in identifying the mass murderer John List and many more. Bender believed that the boy could have been raised as a girl. The artist suspected that the unknown boy had been raised as a different gender because the child's hair was cut in a hurry and not with care, and his eyebrows looked like they were plucked and more feminine. He even made a sketch of how the kid would look with longer hair, in case it might help someone recognize the child that way. Although this wasn't the first rendition of the child as a girl, Back in 1957 and 1958, a retired police officer said that the illustrations had been briefly published in newspapers made by a West Coast artist which led nowhere. Bender's colleagues think that this theory seems possible, but there's been no luck so far. Only time will tell if this is the truth or not, but so far, it's the hypothesis that makes more sense. On March 21, 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the boy and added him to their database. There was even one of what his father could have looked like in hopes of finding a relative, although nobody appeared to claim the boy yet again. Maybe more advances in forensic sciences will be able to figure out who the boy's family are or where they are. Maybe something happened to them too. Only time will tell. Originally, the boy was buried in Potter's Field five months after he was found by the authorities. This is a place in which unknown, homeless, or unclaimed people are buried. This child was the only person who had a headstone on the graveyard which was donated and had an inscription that said, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. But as forensics advanced, his body was exhumed to extract DNA in 1998, obtained from bone and tooth samples, but that led nowhere. This was the same year in which a detective interviewed a woman who might have been the child's mother. He was buried again at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia in a donated plot. The coffin, headstone, and funeral service were donated by the son of the man who had buried the boy back in 1957. There was a significant public attendance and media coverage at the reburial. The new grave has a large headstone bearing the words, America's Unknown Child. His resting place is kept decorated with flowers and stuffed animals given by the people who live in the city or have heard his story, and he has received over 3,000 flower donations to this day. It is a really sweet gesture that feels a bit bittersweet. There's nothing known about the boy, but countless people leave him gifts and keep him in their minds and hearts to this day. Well, alas, fellow humans, we have come to an end of yet another episode. As usual, I just want to say that it was a privilege and a pleasure to spend time with you today. That was episode 6 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D dot net. You can also find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed what you hear, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, be kind to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care.